Again, our scripture reading, 1 Samuel 23, 24b to 29. And then our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 to 51. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Please give your full attention to God's word. He speaks to you. He's speaking to you now as his word is read. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men went on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture him, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now turning to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel chapter 22, what at least the ESV has titled David's Song of Deliverance. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies, all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered His voice, and He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare, at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters, He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. With the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people. 
but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made, me, you made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies and exalted me above those who rose against me. You you delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word, which he has kept and preserved for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful again for your word. Again and again, your word proves true. You declare that it is true, Of course, O Lord, it proceeds from your mouth, and so it must be true. And our experience, Lord, proves it. We know it in our own lives. And so we pray that you would help us to trust your word. Lord, we pray that this passage, this particular passage of your word, that it would be a great encouragement to us, whether we are in a time of crisis now or when we are in a time of crisis at some point in the future. But often it is the case that though we have been delivered from a particular crisis, there are instances in our lives where we are transported back, where we are taken back to that moment of extreme grief and sorrow. We pray that this passage would prove to be a comfort to us, a source of great solace and strength. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would bless your word as it is now preached. Please, O Lord, guide the one who preaches and bless the ones who hear. 
Give us all ears to hear, we pray, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been in this conclusion to the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel for the last few weeks. And this morning's passage, a very long poem, it takes up the middle section of the conclusion, that conclusion which stretches from chapter 21 through the end of chapter 24, which is the end of 2nd Samuel. But really this conclusion is the conclusion of both books, 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, as you already know, this song of deliverance written by David, it's also incorporated in the Psalter as Psalm 18, parts of which we've already read and sung in the service this morning. Psalm 18 is one of the longest psalms in the Psalter. Only Psalm, Psalms 119 and Psalm 72, only these two are longer. Psalm 89 is equal in length. And the length of this song in 2 Samuel, as well as the placement of it in 2 Samuel, these things are significant. They bear consideration. The length and the placement give an indication of the importance of this song. It takes up quite a bit of real estate, originally on a scroll, later on a page. It's a massive song. Over the past couple of weeks, I've listened to some songs, I've read the lyrics as they've uh, gone along, and it's striking when a, when a song, a modern song, has even four different stanzas. Most of the time it's a couple of stanzas, a chorus, maybe a, a tag in there, or something, a bridge, or something like that. This is a massive number of stanzas. A huge, long song. And being placed nearly at the very end of First and Second Samuel, it shows that the author wants the reader to finish these books with this song, in a sense, stuck in your heads. God wants you to go away for your time in 1st and 2nd Samuel remembering this song, these words, this tune. Now, the occasion for the song, as verse 1 says, was Yahweh's deliverance of David from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And yet the last verse of the song, verse 51, indicates that David wrote it and sang it at some point after his enthronement as king. And so we shouldn't assume that David's song of praise for God's deliverance was written at the end of his life simply because it comes at the end of the book that tells David's history. In truth, this is a song that David David very well might have sung a hundred times over because it seems that the Lord was constantly delivering him from one threat or another. It might have been a song to which David added new stanzas as new circumstances in his life dictated. This might even have been a song that David sang in the midst of trouble to remind himself of God's hand of deliverance in the past. The very act of praying, even in a time of crisis, is an act of worship, especially prayer in song form, which is exactly what we should do, which is exactly what David did. And I think we can safely presume it's what David did numerous times throughout his life. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to think about this, to hold this thought before you. God is worthy of our praise before, during, and after any hardship we might face. God is worthy of our praise before, during, and after any hardship we might face. I told you it was a four-pointer. Here they are. The first point, I called upon the Lord. The second, He heard my voice. The third, the righteous is God's delight. And the fourth, great salvation he brings. 
I'll run through those one more time. First, I called upon the Lord. Second, he heard my voice. Third, the righteous is God's delight. Fourth, great salvation he brings. So let's look at this first point of the sermon, I called upon the Lord. The occasion, as we've already looked at, as verse 1 says, is David being delivered from his enemies and from Saul. But it's still uncertain exactly when this song was written. One possibility, which is common for songwriters in our day, is that it might even have been a work in progress for David. He might have begun it, perhaps even spontaneously, after God rescued him from Saul, and then added to it over the course of many years. This would explain both its great length and the fact that it's slightly different here than in the Psalter in Psalm 18. It's a simple explanation. Perhaps it's right. God delivered David from Saul many times, and so it's easy to, to imagine David's relief, even if mingled with sadness, when David found out that Saul would no longer be, be pursuing him. When he received word that Saul was dead, of course he was grieved. He mourned, especially mourned at the death of Saul's son, his best friend Jonathan. And yet there must have also been, with that grief, mingled a bit of relief. And so it's understandable that he would burst forth into song, praising the Lord who had delivered him. And so he sings in verses 2 and 3, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. These words gush forth from the mouth of David. He can't hold them back. He is so delighted and so relieved that he has escaped the hand of Saul. Now these verses may legitimately be taken as a direct reference to David's escape from Saul in 1 Samuel 23, a portion of which was our scripture reading a little earlier. In that episode, we read the end of that episode, David's escape from it, but in that episode, David, he had been staying in the wilderness at Ziph. He had just saved the town of Calah from the Philistines. However, the townspeople turned on David. If you uh, go back to uh, 1 Samuel 22, you'll see that he saved them, he rescued them. They turned on him. He flees to this wilderness around the area of Ziph. The people of Caleb, they ratted him out to Saul and Saul's men. But Jonathan found David first. And Jonathan went to David and he encouraged him to be strengthened in the hand of God. Now, Ziph was about 15 miles to the south of Bethlehem. It was in the land that was allotted to the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. But more specifically, David here was in Horash. Horash was about five miles away from the town of Ziph. And this whole area was very much a wilderness area. The farther south of Jerusalem you went, the fewer and farther between the the towns were. Now, this meeting of David and Jonathan, it was the last time that they would see each other before Jonathan and his father were killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 31. And this may be part of the reason that David makes reference to this event in his song in 2 Samuel 22. Jonathan told David in verse 17 that his father would not find David and that David would be king over Israel. And Jonathan's words proved true. They had what we described when we were in uh, 1 Samuel 22, 23, what we described as almost a covenant renewal ceremony. They made a covenant with one another, we read there. And then the people of Ziph, they betrayed David. So David and his men, they departed from Ziph. They went to the wilderness of Maon, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men pursued them there. 
And at one point, at the end of chapter 23, David and his men are on one side side of a rocky promontory. Saul and his men are on the other side. They're closing fast. They're running around. David's trying to escape Saul. And all of a sudden, Saul receives a messenger who says, the Philistines are attacking Israel. You've got to go back home. And Saul departs. His men depart. David is delivered. He's saved. David was a dead man. His men were dead men. Philistines attack. Saul is drawn off. David bursts forth into song. David knew by whose hand the Philistines were sent. He named that rock the rock the place the rock of escape because the Lord's hand by the Lord's hand he and his men had narrowly escaped death. And so in our passage in verses 2 and 3 David makes explicit what is implied in 1 Samuel 23:28. Yahweh is his rock and his fortress and his deliverer. Now, while in one sense the rock proved to be impregnable to Saul, he could not reach David even though he was just on the other side of it. David knew that it was only because of the Lord that his life had been saved. David was as good as dead, for the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me, he says in verses 5 and 6 of our passage. And so if he is indeed referring back to 1 Samuel 23, I think that he is, what an incredibly poetic way of describing it. Now it might seem a little over the top to our postmodern ears, but David truly was close to the snares of death as Saul closed in on him. But in my distress, we read in the first half of verse 7, I called upon the Lord Yahweh. To my God I called. And in the next section, we'll explore what happened when David called out to the Lord. So that takes us to part two, he heard my voice. Now be honest for a moment, not out loud. This is a rhetorical question. Little ones who love to shout out the answer to things, don't do it now. You might be embarrassed. Be honest. What is your reaction when things go sideways? When things break? When a crisis strikes? Yesterday, I was in the kitchen getting things ready for lunch. Felt a little out of it for some reason. Don't quite know why. I was getting a bag of pizza that was being kept carefully in the fridge. It was sitting on top of a container of strawberries and something happened and I pulled the bag out and the strawberries went crashing to the floor. And I'm embarrassed by my reaction. I had to apologize to my family because of the way that I reacted. I didn't yell out in curses, but did get somewhat creative with my language when I said it. I thought I had smushed strawberries all over the floor. My family loves strawberries. I thought that I was the bringer of great ruin to one of the great fruits, the beloved fruits of our family. How is it that we react when things don't go well? Some may curse under their breath, some out loud. Some may go into a catatonic state, overwhelmed with anxiety. And if you have struggled with some sort of serious trauma in your life in the past, and you're in a situation that's similar to that, you can drop off. You can lose touch. Some react with anger. Sometimes that anger is directed specifically at the Lord. How often is our immediate reaction to bow down in prayer when things don't go right? Maybe some of the time. Maybe if other people are around, perhaps our church family's around, 
Perhaps if you're the pastor of the church, you know you've got to pray at certain places, at certain points in the history of the life of your church. You might bow down in prayer. But I think for many of us, perhaps most of us, when crisis hits, we panic. We get angry. We don't cry out in praise and prayer to the Lord. We don't call upon Him to bring us relief. We shake our fists. How often when we are under distress do we immediately go to the Lord and worship Him? Remember, prayer is inherently worship. When you pray to the Lord, whether you physically bow down or not, you are bowing your soul before your King and you are begging Him for His help. How often do we do this? Not often enough. But apparently here, After this great crisis, when David knew that he was good as dead, he burst into song. We might even say in the middle of crisis. He prayed through poetry. Incidentally, have you ever considered that when you sing in worship, whether in corporate worship or at home or in your car, if you're singing a hymn or some sort of song of praise, that you are praying? Our hymns in our worship service serve the function of prayers. That's in in terms of the elements of worship. Singing is prayer. And so when you sing congregationally, you're praying congregationally. That's one of the reasons that we are free in the OPC to sing both uh, psalm selections, songs out of the Psalter, but also uninspired hymns. Because we don't believe that we are forced by God's word, even in corporate worship, to sing or to pray only the words of God as found in scripture. We can sing, we can pray, even extemporaneously in one sense, but we sing hymns typically in our congregation that have stood the test of time. They've been vetted, they've been looked at, considered, they've been accepted in a sense by the church as theologically uh, sufficient and correct and orthodox. Well, David cried out to the Lord and God heard him. The rest of verse 7 says, From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. David's prayer did not fall on deaf ears, brothers and sisters. He wasn't crying out in prayer, and his prayers just hit the ceiling and bounced back down. The Lord heard him. God responded. And God's response was amazing. Now, as I read this, I was reading back through this passage, it made me think of one part in the movie Forrest Gump. I recognize I might be treading on thin ice here. Some of you have seen it, some of you haven't. I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but if you've seen it, you know what part I'm about to talk about. Forrest Gump is sitting on a bench in this town. He's waiting to see Jenny for the first time in many, many years. He keeps having these conversations with people. He's eating chocolates as he's sitting there, and various people come and sit down. At this one point, he's got two people, a man and a woman, who are sitting beside him, and he's telling the story of Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. He's specifically telling the story of Lieutenant Dan, his lieutenant in the Vietnam War. Lieutenant Dan was was a hardened and grizzled man who had, had his legs cut off at the knees, who was handicapped, who was bitter and angry, And 
Lieutenant Dan, when they're out on their shrimp boat, trying to get things started, it's the only hope that they have of some sort of employment, of, 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 of business, of revenue. They can't catch a single shrimp. The net comes in, they dump it out, and uh, an army helmet spills out, a couple of conch shells, and some trash, a license plate, and other things. No shrimp. And Lieutenant Dan yells out, Where is your God now? And Forrest says to the people to whom he's relating the story, it's funny he should say that, because right then God showed up. And you remember, if you've seen the movie, that God did show up. Lieutenant Dan is sitting in the upper mast in the crow's nest of his shrimp boat, swaying back and forth as the storms come and buffet that boat. Now that's a, a lighthearted way, perhaps, to illustrate what happens when the Lord shows up in David's account. God showed up for David in a big way. Verses 8 to 16 contain what one commentator refers to as a theophany, which just means an appearance of God. Let me read those verses to you again, verses 8 to 16. David cries out to the Lord. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. The Lord heard David and came immediately and scattered his enemies. God showed that he is not a God to be trifled with. He's the kind of God who will put the fear of God into a person. He'll put the fear of God into all creation. Now verse 8 of that passage says that the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of heaven, heaven trembled and quaked. Verse 10 says that he bowed or bowed the heavens. Either pronunciation will work because the Hebrew, means, the Hebrew word there means to stretch. God bent down heaven to earth as it were. He came down riding on a cherub, as verse 11 puts it. He thundered from heaven, as verse 14 says. He came to earth, but he never left his throne on high. According to verse 13, coals of fire flamed forth from the, the brightness before the Lord, and he sent arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them, verse 15 says. He rolled back the sea so that the deepest trenches of it were exposed, and all of this happened at the rebuke of Yahweh, according to verse 16. David is saying here that Yahweh, that God, was willing to move heaven and earth to save him. And that's what he did. And what he did for David, he is willing to do for you and me. When you cry out to the Lord as his child, he hears your voice. He will move heaven and earth to save his children. Verses 17 to 19 say that God sent from on high, drawing David out of deep waters, rescuing him from his strong enemy, from those who hated him, who were too mighty for him. He was doomed 
They comforted, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, he says. On his own, he had no hope of escape. But, he says, the Lord was my support. That brings us to the third point of the sermon, the righteous is God's delight. And that brings us to a question that perhaps you are asking, why? Why did the Lord do all of this for David? And what do you like him to do that for you sometime? If you're a kid who's being bullied, or if your enemy, some disease or other physical ailment, you want to be gone, and you ask for the Lord to deliver you from it, why did the Lord do all of this for David? Because, David said, he delighted in me. Ponder that for a moment. This is the delight that a mother or a father feels for their children. The Lord delighted in David because David was his child. Now you understand what that feels like. You either have been a child, all of us have been a child. We know what it likes to have parents who delighted us. Hopefully you do. You know that not everyone has the same experience growing up in their household. Many of you, most of you, have children. You know what it's like to delight in your child. You've been delighted simply because you have a close relationship with another person. Delighted in them or delighted in. The Lord delighted in David because he was his child. And also because, as David says in verse 21, Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According, According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Wait a minute. If that's the case, we have no hope, right? No one is righteous, no, not one. God dealt with David according to his righteousness. So what hope do I have? Well, wait a minute. We're here in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. We've been following the exploits of David, the good and the bad, since chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. We have seen it all, not literally, but we've seen so much of David, the good, the bad, the ugly. Now, it may be that this song, or at least this portion of it, was written by David before some of his most egregious sins. Think David, Uriah, Bathsheba. But David was never perfect in, any, in, in every way, not even practically perfect in, any, in every way. But, David says in verses 22 to 23, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. David continues saying that he was blameless before the Lord, keeping himself from guilt, and that Yahweh has rewarded him according to his righteousness. Now, it may be that David was completely self-unaware, that he had some serious blind spots when it came to his own sin. But remember this for a moment. David is is the divinely inspired author of this portion of Scripture. This is holy writ. This is the very word of God. David might have selective amnesia when it comes to his own sin, but God does not. What is it then? How, in light of everything that we know about David and his various sins, how does this make it into the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel at the end of the history of David? Well, we all probably know parents whose children can do no wrong in their eyes. Their kids might be holy terrors, but the parents will never notice it. Of course, none of those types of parents are here in this room at present. That is not the case with God, however. 
Remember, he's the one who saw fit to include the various accounts of David's sins. The very last chapter of this book, of both books of Samuel, when taken as a whole, as they should be, it gives the account of a terrible sin committed by David for which he has to repent. The last verses of the last chapter of this book depict David building an altar as part of his repentance. This isn't a case of God turning a blind eye to David's sin, to his wrongdoing. But how then do we understand David saying things like he says in verses 26 to 28 that with the merciful God shows mercy, shows himself merciful. With the blameless man, God shows himself blameless. With the purified, God deals purely and God saves a humble people. How do we understand this coming from the mouth of David in celebration of the great deliverance that God has brought for him? Because, David says in verse 29, you are my lamp, O Lord. And my God lightens my darkness. Now David may be referring to his enemies by using the metaphor of darkness here. That by lightening the darkness, he has removed David's enemies from his path. But the metaphor of darkness may also be more personal. Referring to David's old sinfulness. If the Lord lightens your darkness, he is purifying you from sin. That's what David begs for in Psalm 51, where he cries out in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David continues in Psalm 51, verses 7 and following, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David says in verse 31 of our passage, This God, His way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in Him. Brothers and sisters, there is only one way for a sinner to be righteous in the sight of a perfect God. And that is to be counted as righteous, to be reckoned as righteous. That can only happen by having the righteousness of someone who is perfect counted as your own. And that brings us to part four, great salvation he brings. Now verses 32 and following, David returns to the motif of God as his rock and his refuge, which is how he began this song. He says in verse 34, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. But the way in which David walks, now walks with the feet of a deer, according to verse 33, is blameless. The path upon which he treads is improved. It's perfect. It's smooth. Verse 37 says, You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. The Lord had set David on a secure, solid, safe path. And then David gives an account of how the Lord equipped him. The Lord saved him from, his, from the hands of his enemies, but he also trained him for future battles. I think we sometimes forget this. Not only did God save you from the eternal fires of hell if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but he is equipping you even now to stand firmly in the battles of this life. God has saved you. But he has also appointed the means by which you are preserved unto eternal life. And one of the ways that he is preserving you is by equipping you, in a sense, to preserve yourself. 
Verse 35 says, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Verse 36 says, You have given me a shield, the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness has made me great. Brothers and sisters, we are intended to participate or to at least cooperate with our sanctification. God has given us great gifts of the Spirit to enable us to fight against the enemies that we have, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are not simply to remain passive and sit back and do nothing. He's equipped us to fight battles. Ultimately, yes, the battle belongs to the Lord. We were reminded of that last week. We have to remind ourselves of that every day. But God has given us gifts. He's given us tools. He's given us weapons to fight against our enemies. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness has made me great. How, how often might we avoid falling into the trap of sin that temptation set for us if we remembered this verse? In the Lord, by, in the Lord, by his gentleness, gentleness, you have been made great. This is where worm theology is often taken too far. In Psalm 22, verse 6, David does say, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Some people, I think, have this as their life verse. But the danger for you and for me is that if we constantly tell ourselves that we are worms, just like if we constantly tell ourselves that we are animals, we will act like worms, we will act like animals. The problem with constantly thinking this way about yourself is that it denies the power of God in your life. But just as with David, God has made us great. We don't brag, but we are children of the Most High King. God has given us good. He's given us great gifts. And therefore, as David says in verse 38, we can pursue our enemies. We can destroy them, not turning back until they are consumed. God has equipped David, and so God has equipped us, as David says in verse 40, with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under battle. God makes David's and our enemies turn their backs to us in fear and flight. David goes on to say somewhat graphically in verse 43, I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire in the streets. To use the parlance of the day, God has caused David no longer to identify as his weakness, as his sin. In the Lord, David is great, he is strong, he is victorious. And that is how David identifies himself in this psalm. That's how we ought to identify ourselves. We should identify ourselves with our sin or even as our sin. That's a trend that is going on right now. And even in the church, it's a trend. Our first words out of our mouths are, in some people's cases, their sexual orientation, their pronouns. This is not what we're supposed to identify as. We identify as children of the living God who has given us victory over sins that would ensnare us. We don't have to point out our weaknesses constantly to other people. We shouldn't humble brag either. Verse 44 indicates that at least this last section was sung by David, was written by him after he became king. 
We read there, you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. And verses 45 and 46 speak of foreigners coming to David to entreat for peace with him. They had heard of the great victories that David had had. They did not want to go to war with this mighty king. Now these verses sound almost like they could have been written after Absalom's insurrection or Sheba's rebellion. If so, the composition of this song would span over a large portion of David's life. The last portion of this psalm, spanning from verses 47 to 51, it is pure praise of God. David declares that the Lord lives. He blesses God as his rock, the foundation of his salvation. He says that God gave David vengeance over his enemies, victory over those who fought against him, exalting David over those who rose up against him. And for this, David says in verse 50, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. In the immediate context of verse 50, David is praising God for equipping him and giving him victory after victory over his enemies. But I think we also have to look at verse 50 in the context of this whole song. As if David had said, for all of this, O Lord, for the hard times, the terrible times, as well as the victories, I will praise you. If we can learn to praise God, not only following the great victories in our lives, after we've had great success, but also to praise him in the midst of sorrow, great sorrow, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of depression, anxiety, worry, then we would be like Job who could say after the terrible loss of all of his children, all of his material possessions having fallen on the ground to worship the Lord, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this is not mere stoicism, brothers and sisters. The rest of the book of Job proved that it was not stoicism. Job was in mourning. He grieved. But the Lord had equipped Job to stand firm in his faith in the midst of a terrible crisis. Job and David, and we ought to, have what might be called a humble confidence. These men were confident, but their confidence was tempered by humility. Their confidence was not in themselves. They recognized that all good things come from the Lord. They recognized that even the bad things were meant for their good. And so we should remember as the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, answer one, say so wonderfully, so beautifully, that he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. All things, brothers and sisters. The good, the bad, the ugly. All things work together, must work together for your salvation if you belong to the Lord. Now ultimately it is Jesus who gains the victory. Ultimately, it is Jesus who says those words that we read that we're astonished that David could say, I'm blameless, I'm righteous, I'm humble. I defeat my enemies. I crush them under my feet. Ultimately, it's Jesus, David's son, who can sing this psalm in utter and complete truth. It is about him, ultimately. And so at least portions of it, we can say, are, are messianic. It's what Jesus has done for you and me. 
He has won the victory so that you and I can be victorious. It is his righteousness, his perfect obedience, that by faith is counted, reckoned as your own, imputed to you. And for that reason, brothers and sisters, you can say, though I am a sinner, though I still sin, I am a saint. I have been set apart. I have been sanctified. I'm being sanctified. I have been justified. I have been adopted. I will be glorified. And already, I am seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus Christ, my Savior. I'm with him in the heavenlies already. You can say with King David that you have been given the victory. This is the great salvation that God brings, not only to his king, but also to all of David's offspring forever, as verse 51 tells us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are David's offspring. The same salvation that was given to him has been given to you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. That is the promise of God to those who are perishing. That is salvation for God's people. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, again, we thank you for your word and this portion of it. We pray, Lord, that you would send us forth today with great joy because of the victory that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would remind us of how you have equipped us for the fight, that we are not mere sitting ducks or lambs who are awaiting the slaughter. Already, Lord Jesus, you have won the battle Our victory is secured. Our strife is over. Please, dear Lord, help us to remember these things as we go through the coming week. Help us to have deep joy because of what you have done for us and what you are doing through us. Help us, O Lord, to gain victory over those temptations that so easily ensnare us. Help us, Lord, to walk in humble confidence, knowing that our battle has already been fought and has already been won. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.